Well, again, uh, welcome to the 38th episode of the 905 podcast with me, Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. And uh, for our Thursday episode this week, we're, we're going to uh, um, kind of lead off from our Tuesday episode with Alyssa Briley on um, the evictions that are happening in Toronto at the moment and look into slightly the, the wider issue of housing affordability. Um, uh, based on some recent articles and some uh, some local news here in Burlington that's happening at the moment. Um, so um, we spoke, Joel, with, with uh, Alyssa, and, and uh, one of the things I think we actually spoke about it off-air after the, we finished recording was um, uh, something that goes by the exciting name of um, – uh, ah, the name's just gone out of my head – um inclusionary zoning that's the that's the word inclusionary zoning is 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 something that sounds deadly boring but um it's something with a lot of potential uh, for maybe um finding a way to to get affordable housing um in, in at a proper proportion built into new developments mm-hmm. uh, and we and we were talking about that and it's basically you know you say to a developer sure you can build your your 30 story building but we want a percentage um to be guaranteed um, uh, affordable units uh, in perpetuity. Um, seems like a, a good idea. Um, uh, so, and uh, just sort of in connection with that, uh, the news is coming out at the moment. Something that's been anticipated for a long time in Burlington is a, a uh, by Burlington standards, certainly a huge development um, is coming, uh, beginning to come to council uh, that will be built on Burlington's sort of main thoroughfare, Fairview Street, near the uh, the, the closest to downtown GO station, uh, an area of land that used to be kind of car lots and um, is is certainly, I would say, uh, suitable for for development. And the, the city's had its eye on it for a long time, and we're looking at something like uh, a proposal for um, up to seven residential towers. Um, uh, some with mixed use, so they would have um, you know stores and commercial property in the bottom, residential above. Uh, 25, uh, 20, 2,494 residential units of mixed type and tenure, so there might be some rental, commercial space. Um, and we thought we'd just look at this within the context of affor- the affordable housing issue and the... Um, the arguments that are made on the developer side about the, uh, what they should be allowed to do within our cities at the moment. So, um, I don't know, Joel, what's, what's, what's your thoughts on this huge issue I've just outlined? Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's a huge, it is, it's a huge issue and it's, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, the, I, th- I don't think there's a, there's a slam dunk answer to, to any of the issues. I, I would say, Coming off of our conversation with Alyssa, I thought it was enlightening. The and one of the things I asked her at the near the end of the podcast was about uh, the the a tsunami of evictions that are becoming our way uh, if everything is left to stand as as they currently are. Um, and it's, I think it's going to be a huge um, a huge problem, a huge detriment to recovering our not just our provincial but our our, our national economy as well. Uh, that you can't have people g- going back into into work as normal if they're now jo- uh, couch surfing or apartment hunting 
And let's face it, across the 905, not just Burlington, but the 905 as a whole, apartments are scarce. We haven't really been building apartment buildings in the last decade, last two decades. It's all been condo developments. Um, And that's a whole other can of worms in terms of you're not really renting from a, a a company you're renting usually from one one person or maybe a group of people who own a few, they've, they bought them as investment properties and they're renting it out. And that's, that's all well and good, good for them. And that's, yeah, I, I have no problem with that. But if that's the rental industry at the moment, then is just people buying condos and townhomes and, and whatnot for, for rep, uh, rental income. Uh, do we have a lot of, inventory on the market to, to house people, not to mention, is it affordable? Um, is it affordable to low income, moderate income people looking to, to make a, looking for a place to live? And it's just like, I mean, it's just a whole mess of different problems all going to come together in a, like a perfect storm at some point down the road. Um, and I think we need to start looking at it now to really mitigate the, the situation. Um, which is why I, you and I had this discussion kind of offline, uh, and I wanted to bring it up on this episode about the idea of inclusionary zoning, which I didn't know it was that name until you, you brought it up. But basically, yeah, the idea is you tell a developer, okay, yeah, we're just going to sign off on on uh, your project. So you're going to build in a, in a neighborhood, you're going to build a, a townhome development or a condo tower or whatever. Great, wonderful. We need them. But, you know, 10%, 8%, you know, a, a fixed number, a a small percentage of the air thrown into a social housing pool. And my, my idea was that the province would mandate to every municipality in the province, you must create, if you don't already have one, you must create a municipal housing corporation, which these units would then be turned over to. Um, and like, yeah, 10% of uh, this, this, uh, project that we're talking about now, well, not how many units were in there? Uh, in this, uh, it was, was it 1200, something like that? Okay, um, so 12, I'll get you the number. Okay. Like to, uh, 1200 units. Actually, sorry, more than that. Uh, 2400 units. 2400. Hmm. So, I mean, 10% is a, is a fraction of that. And you could offset the cost of that by selling the units. Like you just incorporate the, the loss, if you will, of those, 10% in the cost of the other units, nobody's going to notice the difference and you're, you're selling it off. You don't have to pay it off over time. You just sell it off or you get your mandate to give them to the municipal housing corporation to which then they themselves would have to figure out a way to rent them out. They would be the landlord. They would own those, those units. They would be involved in the, in the condo board as the landlord uh, or the, the owner of those units. And they would then, lease them out, sublet them, rent them out to people of uh, moderate or low income. And this would, I think would help, I, I think would have a moderate effect on the housing market as a whole. A, I think it would bring down, be uh, help solve the, the housing issue. Uh, somewhat, I don't, it's not, a, it's not a, a magic bullet. It's not going to solve it all, but I think it would bring down the housing uh homelessness issue somewhat as a, as a, as a solution. And two, it would help maybe start, start, start to curb the runaway housing prices that we're seeing in the 905. Um, if, you know, if, if 
because we keep hearing about oh, the supply and demand, supply and demand problem. Well, yeah, if if you're if people who are qualified for low income and medium uh, income support are removed from competing in the the pricing market, and I my hope is that it would start maybe cooling the runaway pricing that we're seeing uh, in the in the housing market for you know, condos and townhomes and whatnot. I, I don't, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to say that's the, that's my stop. That's my solution. But I, at the very least would help find homes for families who need it. Um, and, and the third thing is the other fear that people have is we set up, if you set up these low income housing projects, that's the fear is like, you're going to see what you had in the inner cities in America of just, these housing projects where people just move in there and they're stuck there. There's no mobility. There's no, it's not a stopgap solution. It's you, you put people, poor, put poor people essentially into ghettos and you hide them away and you don't have to worry about them. That would stop this because they wouldn't be hidden away. They would be in our community communities. They would be participating vibrant members of our, of our community as a, as a whole. Yeah, I was actually in the interview with Alyssa, I think I mentioned at one point the very different experience in Europe um, and just when I was growing up in Britain with with what we call council housing. And by and large, very good thing, certainly provides a, a, a ready supply of uh, affordable housing. But when these things were built in the 50s and 60s and 70s, that notion of you build an estate, you put the poor people on it, was was very uh, central to the kind of thinking. Uh, you can imagine the problems that can cause when you separate out um, populations by income like that. Uh, so you can end up with sink estates and uh, all kinds of other social ills. Um, there's actually a town in Britain um, called Livingston uh, that was built by, uh, it, was, it was a planned new new city, and uh, um, I think it's Livingston. Or there's, two, there's a number of cities, but one of them in particular, they designed it so that each street would have the different strata of society on it. So you might have a a doctor earning a good, good income, and when the city was built, a coal miner um, uh, at, at the other end. Uh, and it's actually been shown to work fairly well. Now, since then, the city has grown and changed, and that that plan has gone by the wayside um but um i believe there were some studies on it that actually showed that it worked that it, when you take away these uh, artificial distinctions based on how much someone earns um it's healthier for communities as a whole um uh, and when you think about it that seems completely obvious and it's what happened in our sit- towns and cities for for thousands of years before they grew to the scale that they are now um now, the inclusionary zoning is something, when I uh, was sort of involved with the city over the last couple of years, it was something that I was very interested in because it seems like a kind of win-win for everybody pretty much. Um, yeah, that's what I, I, I viewed it as is, you know, developers get to build the, the, the projects that they want to. And quite frankly, we need, we need development to continue. The problem is, you know, developers don't have a, there's not really an incentive to build ghettos, essentially, you know, just like, you know, these blocks of townhomes where the plan is, let's put all the poor people and forget about them. 
it's, it's another question I, I maybe should have asked, or we maybe should have asked Alyssa because because she, she'd be more of an expert on it. But to my mind, if you look at if you expect the market to provide, um, which is the kind of North American mentality in housing, it has to come from the market. Developers will build. Um, I'm not sure that anywhere in the world is there a good example of the market providing providing affordable low income housing. Um, it it doesn't because why would you? There's no uh, the building industry has no interest in building things that are cheap. Well, the pr- they're, the trying, problem- <laughs> they're trying to make money, you know. Well, the, the problem with um, the market provides mentality is it's not necessarily what the the market will provide the most affordable. The market will provide the most expensive within a given jurisdiction. Like you, you, that's why you have these. Every now and again, you open up the the Globe or the Toronto Star or whatever paper, and they'll say, "Hey, what does a million dollars buy you in terms of housing around the world?" Well, if, if the if it's a free market, you know, a million dollars should buy you the same size lot, no matter what. Like it, the it, the the cost of the unit shouldn't fluctuate based on the free market. Like you should like a, a million dollars here in on here in Burlington will buy you a condo with a nice view of the lake down by the waterfront. A million dollars um on the east coast is gonna buy you a gorgeous estate with your own private beach. So don't tell me like oh the, the market will provide because that doesn't you know that what happens is you 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 lose so much on the on the side. Like we, that's there's a big issue of that pricing structure forcing out young families, forcing out. You know, you, you don't have the generational over turnover. You have just essentially you have like the old, as you said, the old rich white doctors moving out of Toronto, moving out here to the burbs, and then you force out all the young families that, you know, you want them to sit there and make their lives there. You want them to build and be entrepreneurs and build careers and whatnot, not yeah. the retirees looking to dump, looking to dump their nest egg. Yeah. I mean, I think what the market does very successfully uh, is the market's very good at making profits for people, uh, which is fine. I'm not necessarily against that, but it's also very good at stratifying um it's very good at getting all your poor people to live in one place and all your rich people to live in another. I don't think that's healthy. Uh, it's not even convenient um, for, you know, we, we need people to work in, uh, uh, you know, skilled trades and working class jobs. And we need people who are lawyers and other stuff in every city. We don't want, to separate them out so we've got well like you said a kind of ghettos and and uh, um walled cities of rich people that's what we're seeing in places like burlington oakville uh right now for sure i think um that uh it's becoming a kind of right retirees um uh, uh privilege to live here um now, I mean, I have seen developers at council meetings talk so often about, well, you have to let us build this because we need housing affordability. If you don't let us build, then the prices will go up. And yet I came across an article from a gentleman that I mentioned last week. I'm going to mention him again, Dave Wilkes, president and CEO of B- of Build, which is the, uh, let me get make sure I get this right, the Building Industry and Land Development Association. 
who seems to have a regular column in uh, various star new- newspapers, which, uh, you know, that's nice. We'd all like a, st- a column in the star. I, 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 it's surprising that, that a an industry lobbyist would have such a, a regular uh, appearance. But on the one hand, you have the building industry saying, you've got to let us build because we've got to have more housing and we need to make sure things are affordable. So they're trying to tick those boxes that, that make councillors and politicians feel good. And then in this article from the 20th of November, uh, Mr. Wilkes talks about affordable house, uh, about um, inclusionary zoning. Building affordable housing requires true partnership, he says. Well, that sounds all very nice. Um, but then he gets on to inclusionary zoning. Um, it's a laudable goal to encourage the development of more affordable housing. Unfortunately, the requirement, and he's talking about Toronto here, in Toronto's draft policy framework, so onerous that they will act as a disincentive and may in fact worsen the housing supply situation in what is already one of Canada's most constrained markets. Um, and in essence, this comes down to um, the fact that they're being asked to give too many units and that they're being asked to pay for them. Uh, and that already, um, and I'll just if I could find the line in the article, I would tell you, but um, there are already far too many burdens on developers. Well, the burdens that are put on developers by cities, um, the various fees that are charged, do not cover the fees in any city in Ontario, as far as I know, do not cover the actual cost to the city of that building being built. So, you know, the the the, the things that the city will have to do in terms of sewerage and services and all the other things. Um, so development does not pay for itself. It used to be a myth that, uh, you know, greenfield developments were, were uh, encouraged by cities because it was a good way to expand the tax base. It doesn't actually work like that. And greenfield developments are some of the most expensive uh, uh, areas for cities to uh, serve and maintain. Um, because they're so spread out, you've got to have even more sewerage and, uh, uh, and and services to cover these large, spread out, sprawling uh, estates. Uh, so this is baloney. You know, we're in effect uh, subsidizing developers to build. Um, they've they're constantly asking for more changes to the law to allow them to build more easily. Uh, and another article by the same author, um, he. Uh, has been uh, basically calling on uh, the municipalities to sort of shape up because now the uh, Premier Ford has has uh, provided these legislative changes that they've been asking for. Uh, now it's only the municipalities who are standing in the way and stopping the developers doing what they need to do. Um, again, it strikes me as a strange kind of op-ed, a strange kind of uh, writing that is that is. Um, well, I- uh, I, I, th- I think, but going back to our, our conversation that we had with Alyssa, uh, previous episode, things need to change. Like we, we've, if you want to, yeah, I, I, we've, I've said this before on this podcast. I've said it before in private, like if when you step back, like COVID has kind of shone a light on the things that aren't working in our society. Um, we, we've been building developments for decades now with the, yeah, with the uh, idea, oh, it'll bring down costs. It, it ha- it hasn't, but you know we're, we're not maybe we're not building the right kind of developments. You know, there's there's no there are no rental options. Um, which I mean, I look at you know my 
this is anecdotal uh, evidence, but I'm sure it's something that I'm hoping our listeners are, are going to sympathize with. But my parents uh, are retired, and they had plans to uh, sell their home and for a nice little sum, and then move into find a nice small little apartment that they'd rent, and they just pay a fixed rent for the rest of their days, and they'd live off the spoils of a life well lived and the investment from their home their home and they that's that's how they would live i'm sure that's that's how it's supposed to work right that's that's the plan is you you live a long life you work hard you reach a point where you retire and the house that you've been investing in and upkeeping for decades you sell it and you live off the sale for well into your twilight years um and beyond that's not the case anymore my parents sold their house to try and look for they started looking for a rental accommodation that was within their budget nice like they didn't want to just take anywhere they wanted and rightfully so uh and it's just i it was sad because my my wife and i i told them like good luck if you find if you find a place that you can rent that is good and has vacancy good good luck to you don't tell anyone because it's a like it, it, it's a mad fight out there for for rent. There's nobody's renting unless you get in. Like I said before in this episode, unless you get into the condo rental game, and then that's a whole other can of worms that you're you're gonna have to deal with. And you know, there, there has we had the free market has not filled this need. The, like the, I, I believe there's a there's a there's a huge market out there of retirees who say I don't want to buy another property I don't want to own something to uh, have to upkeep and and whatnot I just want to pay I want to pay a rental fee I want to rent a nice two bedroom apartment somewhere and live out the rest of my days there I don't need a big big house for four or five uh, five people anymore well and it can lead to the kind of situation where and one of the challenges we're facing with an aging population is, is uh, quite naturally, um, uh, many people, many seniors don't want to leave their homes. That uh, They've paid, you know, many people don't want to do what your parents do and downsize. Many people want to stay exactly where they are because they like their home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, which is another thing kind of putting a restriction on the market that you'll have one person living in a big house and a young family uh can't uh they're stuck in their can't apartment. get into it yeah they're, 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 i know i like yeah that's the problem is that you have these young families moving to the 905 uh you know and they're stuck renting basement apartments they're stuck renting townhomes that are meant for like essentially newlyweds just to earn some capital and then you move in the ideas you're told you're then move into the new, like the, the bigger home for your family. When you, you know, when the, the first child, the second child come along, you sell your small starter home and you move, move into the, the family home. That doesn't happen. Um, it just, it like it, the market doesn't provide that anymore. And I know that because my, my family, my, that's the my situation in my house. The house that I'm living in now was not the house we were supposed to be living in right now. The plan was always when our children arrived, we were going to sell this house and move into a bigger house to accommodate a growing family. We tried to look in that and the problem was um, 
we can't afford anywhere to move any anymore. If we want to move, we're moving down to Niagara Falls, and I'm I, you know no offense to Niagara Falls at this point. No, I don't want to move there. Um, you know, we're we're lucky that we like our neighborhood. We like our neighbors. The house itself is is a good house, and um, we like the school that my my children are in. But you know, th- this is this the, the state. And I think Melissa brought up is that we are facing. I think we are facing with a market failure. We're we're told the market would provide the need or provide the demand, and it hasn't. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I, th- I think I think the developers are way behind on demand. At the yeah, and what well, they are because there's no there's no there's no benefit to them in building something that reduces the price of housing. Let's face it. Last thing they want to do is reduce the value of the property they're selling. Um, so they're never going to build prices low. Uh, it, that makes no sense. I can't think of anywhere in the world where the market has built quality low income housing without governments saying. Build some low, uh, not low quality. Build some high quality, low income housing. Um, in Burlington, there's a number of good uh, housing co-ops. There's also a couple of less good ones, um, uh, but they're a dying breed because they tend to be on land that the developers would really like to get their hands on to build condos. Uh, there's a really good example of that um, on the lakeshore right now, opposite Joe Brandt Hospital. Uh, that a uh, a a a way for people to buy property in Burlington who are on uh, more moderate incomes uh, existed there. You could buy into that co-op uh, at really a quite, uh, frankly, quite surprisingly low price. Um, but that will be gone soon and will become a very high-priced uh, seniors' residence. Again, I'm not saying that. This is all within the rules as as they exist at the moment. So I'm not suggesting anybody's doing anything wrong. Um, I'm suggesting that it, it, that, that it's it's regrettable when we the, the small amounts of affordable housing stock that we have are, are are going away and not being replaced. But those housing co-ops uh, were created with the help of government um, uh, with, with with serious incentives to to, to do that kind of thing. You, you you know the market builds slums if it builds at all for low income people um you know, uh, you know think of back to backs in europe uh, or um you know the the what are they, the favelas in uh, in mexico right. and places like and, that. yeah down brazil um, yeah. yeah you have to have regulation or you get slums um and no one why would you ever consciously set out to build houses for people who are not going to pay as high a price as other people would do. The government has to get involved. The the sort of 20 year, is it 20 years or almost getting off a 25 year sort of moratorium on, on, on government involvement in housing has brought us to this point. And, and yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Again, uh, you know, the big reassessment that maybe we need after COVID uh, needs to include uh, this. And it doesn't have to be, you know, when we talk about governments doing things, I, I, I sort of hear, I, I mentally sort of hear every conservative in Canada rolling their eyes and going, here's another bloody liberal um, writing but, checks with his mouth that, that but, he doesn't want to pay. But here's the thing, like, we we don't, we don't have to, do, this isn't a hypothetical. Like, we're seeing right now, there's no affordable housing being built in this country. And right now, it's 
proving to be, it's not a poor person issue. It's not a place to house poor people. It's now going to, it's now affecting us in real time. Our housing prices are going up because affordable housing is not there in the market. The result has been highly inflated housing prices in the 905 region and other regions in the country, uh, especially in Toronto. Um, the mar- the market hasn't corrected itself. The market has not plateaued this. It has just gone up and up and up. Right now, I think the only solution, the, the problem is they are right. There is not enough supply to meet the demand. The developers can't build the supply fast enough. They, they don't want to build the supply that's needed to bring this down. So you're right. Government needs to step in. What I think is going to exacerbate the situation is, as we discussed on Tuesday, the wave of evictions that are going to happen after the current moratorium on housing evictions or, or tenant evictions uh, is lifted, there'll be amount there'll be people who just can't pay rent. Their their jobs are are we're in lockdown right now. Their jobs are not being worked at. Their paychecks are not being cashed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you're, we're gonna I think we're gonna see a lot of people being evicted in in 2021 unfortunately unless the government steps in just says nope you can't evict them yeah everybody has to renegotiate uh, a payment structure or whatever um which i I, i'll be honest i don't see this government doing um i i think we're not we face with a huge huge problem and especially in the light of the fact that we want to rebuild an economy that we need both the federal and the provincial governments need an economy that's going to rebound quickly, that is going to be able to adapt to a new new style of econ- uh, of economics, to, uh, to to start paying down the massive debt that we've racked up uh, due to COVID. Uh, you know this this we got to start thinking outside the box here. And I'm sorry, but the the ideology of oh the market will provide the market doesn't give a crap about us. The market doesn't. It's it's going to it will make money off our backs if we, if we let it and we need a government to step up. And I, that's why I, th- I like the idea of the inclusionary policy developers want to build. And this is an easy way to start filling that void. Um, and to, to just at least get the, the, the demand, sorry, the supply up there. Uh, there might be other, other solutions down the road. Uh, that we can talk about, but I think for right now, it's an easy one and it doesn't, I don't think it requires any from the provincial government. It doesn't require any, any extra spending on their part, which is why I brought it up. It's just a change in the law. And you have the minister of municipal affairs come in and say, no, we're going to pass it. If you every, if you don't have one already, every municipality, you know, of a given size must create a municipal housing corporation. And then just say to developers, every build, just put in a provincial law. Every building that is made, that's built in Canada, every pro, or in, in Ontario, I'm sorry, uh, must ha- incorporate. You know, five or ten percent of the units must be social. And then, and then here's the the other kicker: to make sure that you know you're not getting cheated out. Um, their five or ten percent unit, the municipal housing corporation gets first pick. 
they they go in and they get first pick of those that that five ten percent whatever it was so it was one unit or two or three or four or however many they get first pick of them that way we know that they aren't going to be uh, the the ones that are haphazardly made um, and that that to me would be a quick and easy fix without having to cost the taxpayer any money you know and this whole thing you know uh, the the when we talk about uh, municipal housing corporations things like this this doesn't need to be a tax burden there's no reason why uh, housing you're renting you know you, the, the, it's just that the municipality becomes the biggest landlord in the region that's all there is um the the people will still pay a decent uh, uh, rate. It may be uh, subsidized in cases of people with very low incomes, but for most people, they're, they're paying a fairly going rate for for, for where they're going to be living. This doesn't need to be something where well we're going to have to support this with huge amounts of tax. I mean, it could even be something that you know you can work on these systems with developers so that uh, you know. So that it works in everybody's interest. I mean, there is, I'm sure there is a way to partner with developers, um, but they tend to talk about partnership and then they say things like, uh, and to quote this article from the Star by Mr. Wilkes, inclusionary zoning contributions are only the latest of many government-imposed fees, taxes, and charges that new developments attracts. Charges, parkland dedication, and other levies support infrastructure, transit, police, fire, and ambulance services, and social services such as childcare and affordable housing. Yeah, absolutely. That's why you pay for it because you're building that stuff, and as part of building those properties, you are bringing all those costs. Uh, the industry, as currently constituted, and with with basically one particular party uh, willing to give them what they want um, whenever they ask for it, is always going to be wanting to ask to support less and less of the burdens that they create through development. Um, now we need housing. But we also need all the other things that go along with housing. Um, and, you know, I'm not seeing developers going broke. And I'm not seeing them not building. Uh, I believe the GTA has some of the highest rates of building and development in North America, um, despite all the claims about, you know, municipalities standing in the way and so on and so forth. But we certainly need more. We need the more of the right kind. And that's absolutely it should what be building, um, it should be we're building the municipalities right need and want not telling the municipalities we want to build if the municipality says well we need housing but we want a a condo tower of x number of units well like why why is it that no all of a sudden no nobody can build that mm -hmm. um you know and, and to say well we want a new neighborhood here uh here or there okay why, why is it the, the developer has to ask, like, we want to build here. We want to buy this to build it. Well, you can buy it, but we, we're not allowing you to build anything there. Like, we just, uh, uh, I don't, I don't, we don't see the need. If you're going to build it, you build what we need. Yeah. I mean, and that's the way the municipality is meant to work. That's why we have official plans. That's why we have planners to get the right housing in the right places. But at every point along the way, the city says, this is what we need. And the developers say, this is what we want to build. Let's fight over it. Uh, I mean, the whole system is based on conflict, um, which doesn't help anybody. And in that regard, I do have some sympathy for developers because it's a nightmare of a system. And it's built on both sides mm -hmm. fighting out to, to find some kind of solution. 
where I disagree is that the developers have by far the whip hand in, in almost every uh, point along the process to the extent that municipalities really have been sidelined in this whole thing. Uh, taking this development that's proposed in Burlington um, it, um, and it's uh, Molinaro is a big uh, local developer for anyone who doesn't know. Um, and I mean, I actually think it's, it's not the worst proposal that I have seen in Burlington. Well, uh, we, I would say it's. Uh, subs- I don't know where, where it is. I know. I know where you're talking about. Um, it's a. It's a spot that really is primed for high-rise development, in my opinion. It is along. Is pretty much right next door to the Go Train um, stop. And quite frankly, I mean, majority of people in the 905 commute in and out of Toronto. Uh, it's, it's a prime spot. I mean, if you are a young up and coming professional, a yuppie, uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you buy a, a, a unit in there and literally like you wake up, wake up, roll out of bed and roll onto the go train and you're, you're into your job in Toronto in a, in a short half hour, uh, express train. I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I would say, uh, I am entirely in favor of um density in housing mm-hmm. um i i think my my only if i have an objection to height along that part of town it's not so much that i have a, a religious objection to height as i have a religious objection to lack of imagination um that the, these are Tall buildings, stick as many people in, walk away. Right. Um, they are required to put commercial space in, so they will put commercial space in. Um, in recent years, commercial space tends to be units suitable for hairdressers and uh, uh, accountants. Um, they tend not to attract the kind of commercial space that the cities actually want, like uh, independent stores, um, uh, right. uh, businesses. Um, and live work units. I mean, a, a large part of, of of what we're trying to do with with um, intensification is to um, not assume that everybody's going to jump on the train, but actually give people the means to live and work in Burlington. Um, now, it is right by a train line, and we're not going to, you know. But again, COVID has taken everybody off the train. No one wants to be on a train at the moment. Uh, we we the world is is changing somewhat. Let, let's let's face it, like. I think a lot of our our shopping habits are going to change very much over the uh, uh, next couple of years because of COVID. Um, you know, we're, we're going to see a lot more online retail as opposed to the, the need for retail shops. So, the the idea we need commercial space in like a, a storefront boutique is a little outdated. I, I like it, it's already a bit outdated in my opinion, but this is a case where. You know, we, we just a little imagination, I think, could go a long way uh, to create that. And I, I would I, honestly, I would intrigue like if it's twenty four hundred units, and throwing a few units in there to be, um, uh, you know, so social assistant housing. That uh, how, that would go along a huge way to uh, to to help alleviate the uh, the need for affordable housing in this in this city. Yeah, I mean, if you did say ten percent, that'd be two hundred and forty units. That would be right. uh, quite transformational. I would 
I'd be, I would I mean, traditionally how uh, this kind of deal has gone down in Burlington, certainly, uh, you wouldn't be, be talking about 5 or 10%. You'd be talking about 5 or 10 units. Uh, now, in a smaller development than this. So, well, I mean, it... it this will be more affordable than other parts of town as well, because no one's going to be retiring to live by the, the railway line. So, well, it's unlikely people are going to want to retire to live next to the railway line. Uh, so, that, so there's some good things about this, uh, and it is a site that I think is entirely appropriate for 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 dense. Um, uh, for intensification and for a fairly high level density of, of, of property. Uh, I just sometimes wish, you know, when you look at the, the land, the, the lot layout of this site, it's like, wow, they're already doing a lot of density because you've got seven towers. Um, about 50%, if not 60% of the land will be not, not built on because that's what you have to have when you build a tower. See, so for every tower, you end up with space, that has to exist uh, surrounding it. Um, could you not, and this is an, an argument I've seen many times, you know, build something that is a number of stories lower, but it is more imaginative, is more, uh, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but a human scale that uh, uh, maybe doesn't go above 10 stories, but has exactly the same number of units. Um, but I suspect that kind of thing is more expensive to build. Uh, and, these kind of designs that they do now, I mean, it seems to me you can pretty much pull off the shelf and drop down. You know, they all look very much the same. They all have those same kind of uh, architectural yeah, yeah. designs on them. It, it's, it's boring, you know? Uh, so, uh, well, it's going to be interesting hearing uh, uh, listeners' opinions on this. I mean, to say this has been a controversial subject in, in Burlington over the last decade is an understatement. Um, this is certainly the kind of thing that, uh, many people suggested would be a better solution. Do you think that now this has come along? It is a better solution. Um, you know, if we all agree that we have to have housing, um, where would you put it um, in your city, whether you live in Burlington or anywhere else? Uh, we'd love to hear your opinions. And uh, that's probably a good point to leave it off, Joel. Um, um, it's... You know, I think outside of COVID, um, how we plan our cities, how we make the 905 cities more uh, more distinct and more places we can kind of be proud of and, uh, um, you know, um, that th we don't think of them as, as dormitory towns anymore. That We think of them like, I live in a city called Mississauga or uh, not, I live in, I live outside Toronto. Um, uh, that would be, that should be, I think, a, a key kind of priority over the next 10, 20 years to turn this region into something that, that has its own character, has its own, um, uh, distinctness and where we haven't just taken the easy, lazy option all the time, um, because so that we end up with just something that could be anywhere in North America. Um, you know, it, it's, as usual, I, I'm far too um, idealistic, probably, for what will actually happen. But uh, I, I would like to have those conversations uh, uh, as part of what we do on this well, uh, podcast. Why don't we leave it to our listeners, and hopefully they'll let us know what they think about this. 
Great. Okay. Uh, thanks, everybody. And we'll be back next week with more episodes of the 9050. Take care. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Do, did, will. The Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.